0: And welcome back. Can everybody hear me again? Yes? All right. So first question. Do you believe that there will be competitive sports in heaven? Perhaps not in a worldly spectator sports fashion, but a continual basis of always edifying and uplifting each other in some heavenly activity uh, that has skill hierarchy. So the the fact that you say edifying and uplifting each other immediately removes it from competitive. Competitive is not edifying and uplifting. The, the, and when we talk about competitive sports, it is actually about diminishing the other person. Now, it's true that the way you know, iron sharpens iron and then we compete against somebody, we push ourselves. to. But the purpose of the competition is not to build up your competitor. That is not the purpose. We are not seeking to edify our competitor when we compete with the competitor on this in this earth. We actually want to do something to to discourage them, to demoralize them. You will see lots of competitions where they'll go out there with bravado, say words to get in their heads, psych, psych them out. It's it's designed to interfere with their highest quality. That's what competitive sports do. So I don't think there'll be anything that mirrors what we call competitive sports in heaven. That doesn't mean there won't be activities that we engage in with each other, but it'd be much more along the lines if anything like that exists what you described as edifying uh and uplifting where it might be more along the line of coaching where we do this together to help each other develop and advance our skills a music teacher with a music uh with a music student an art teacher with an art student uh, and so if there is any type of sport activity everyone would always be working to uplift the other not to defeat and discourage the other so i don't think i don't really know what that's going to look like because we don't have that here Prayer and fasting as it relates to aiding one who is trying to overcome an addiction. How would you recommend someone go about fasting, fasting from food? Uh, have, a, uh, have a weekly uh, a fast every week or certain times of the day. I know that the Bible in the Bible, Jesus refers to certain demons being cast out only by prayer and fasting and also heard how fasting can help our spiritual focus. Could you provide some insight on this? So, Couple of things about the fasting. This, this is, and, I, and what I'm going to share with you is only partial. I'm, I, I'm certain I do not know all the benefits there are to know about fasting. One aspect of fasting is learning through in, is learning what's called self governance or self control. In order to fast, it requires you to exercise higher cortical circuits and restrain more emotion, craving, desire circuits and impulses for a period of time. That that actually builds up the capacity for self-restraint or self-governance as you fast. So there's an aspect of that. That certainly could help one with a different type of craving. In addition, in, in just a food craving, if you're having a craving for a cigarette or a drink of alcohol, if you've got greater self-restraint because you practice fasting, that would help you in that regard. But that's not the only thing. When we fast, we actually affect the micro the microbiome of our gut and it alters the Um, production of um, neurohormones that affect our brain function and uh, for a um, non-medically harmful fast, because you could fast so long you end up starvation. That's not what we're talking about. Um, um, So healthy fasting actually for a period of time improves our attention, our concentration, our ability and having clarity. And so sometimes the fasting in, in the scripture, people are really wrestling with deep problems and they want their minds to be as sharp and clear from all distractions as can be. Certain foods, and you've all probably noticed this, if you've eaten a really rich, sugary, fatty meal, you will, uh, you know, basic Thanksgiving meal, uh, you will notice that after Thanksgiving meal, there is a mental lethargy that comes on you. You're feeling sluggish and slow. Your energy is down. You don't think as well. And so there's this aspect of fasting that just keeps your mind as sharp as possible. So all these things can be part of that process as well. I was considering the record books in heaven, transcripts of our character. If character is unique due to the decisions in life that make us so special to God, uh, he could not make another you. Could you say that those books are similar to Bible stories, like the story of Enoch or Saul becoming Paul uh, or any of the uh, other stories in the Bible? There would be the book of Russell um, there that there that would be a story as part of the court case evidence that would tell a story of God's great plan for eternity. What a, uh, Yeah, well, you find, I think, support for that idea in the first chapter of Job, when Satan comes walking from to and fro on the earth, and God says initially, hey, have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> look at his life, look at his story, look at what he's done. And so there is this aspect that, and we are called to be as witnesses, lights to a world. And so the way I like to put it would be, if somebody... Uh, if, if various people were dying of terminal cancer and a physician came along with a new remedy that worked with zero side effects and everybody who took it got a 100% cancer free, uh, all the people who take the remedy become witnesses and give glory to the person who made the remedy. They don't give glory to themselves by their healthiness. They give glory to the person who cured them by their healthiness. So, yes, all of our lives will give glory to God and uh, and speak well of him and all the unique struggles and various uh, ditches that we've fallen into and, and stuff that we have been healed and recovered from reveal different elements or aspects of God's power to save and heal and ultimately give more glory to God. So I think there's truth in that for sure. It is clear to me that the morals and, uh, and ceremonial laws were added. The ceremonial laws were nailed to the cross as a type when type met antitype. If the moral laws are hidden in our hearts and we love God with our heart, mind, soul, and others as ourselves, could we say that the moral laws were nailed to the cross for us personally? Uh, No, I would never use that language because... The living law of love, the law of love, the law of truth, the law of liberty, the law of worship, these are the moral laws. The moral laws are the design protocols for life, and when they're established in our heart, we live out the moral laws. They're never nailed to the cross or removed or taken away from us personally. Now, if you want to say, could we say the code and the need for the codification and distillation of the living moral law, the design laws to be written in a code for sinful humans, the 10 written on stone, could we say there's no need? Need for those anymore yes paul actually makes that point to, to timothy very clearly that the law is not given for the righteous it was given for the wicked for the slave trader for the murderer, for the abuser and so forth and so on and so when we are restored to righteousness we don't need the diagnostic written code to show wickedness in us anymore because we we've been healed and restored to righteousness but that doesn't mean in any way that the moral law is done away with or, or nailed to the cross Christians keep saying that Jesus died the death that we deserve, or that I should have died or the death that I should have died. I'm having trouble reading the way the sentence structure flows here. Um, or that I should have died am not saying that I am perfect by any means, but okay. Or the death that I should have died. I am not saying that I am per- by, per- by perfect by any means, but why did I deserve to die like that? So this goes back to what law model you're looking at things through. If you're looking at a romanization law model, then this, that, that's the basic. But if you look at the law model of design law, an HIV-infected man and an HIV-infected woman get together and have a baby born HIV-infected. What's going to happen to the HIV-infected baby if they don't get a cure? They're going to have symptoms. They're going to die. Why do they deserve to die that way? Because they're HIV infected, not because of something they did. And this is what the Bible actually teach. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, not because of our choice, but because of Adam and Eve's choice. Adam and Eve chose to corrupt humanity, and Adam and Eve had been given an ability by God to procreate beings in their image. And once they corrupted themselves with this terminal sin condition, which the Bible describes in various ways, like we are dead in our trespass and sin. Uh, once once they infected themselves, every human being born since Adam and Eve were born with this terminal condition. And so why do we deserve to die? Because we have a condition that's out of harmony with how God built life, uh, if you want to put it that way. But Christ came so that we don't have that, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, and he provides remedy, so if we accept that remedy, then we won't have to die. Now, there's a whole other layer of your question that people say that Christ died the death that we deserve, I take a different position on that. The death that the wicked reap if they reject God is what the Bible calls the second death, the death from which there is no resurrection, the death from which not just the body turns to dust but their entire individuality is gone for all eternity. They don't rise again from that death. If you actually look at the elements of that death, did Jesus die for all eternity? Did Jesus have his individuality destroyed? Or did Jesus rise again? And in fact, it says in Timothy that Jesus, um, um, through, through the gospel, destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Now, is dying an eternal death and being under the power of death so that you stay dead for all eternity, is that the same thing as destroying death? No. This idea that Jesus died the death that we deserve, he certainly died as our substitute. But he didn't die the death to pay a legal penalty of being executed by his father that we deserve. That's not what happened. He died the death to destroy the death-causing principle and restore the life-causing principle in humanity to actually overcome and eliminate the reason and cause for death to actually destroy him who holds the power of death. That's what it says in Scripture, that by his death he destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, Hebrews 2.14. So this is what he did. He did not die as a victim overcome by sin. He died as a life-giving sacrifice who overcame sin. There's complete difference. And the wicked in the end do not die victorious through Christ over sin. They die consumed and destroyed by sin. But Jesus, our substitute, destroyed sin rather than being destroyed by sin. Do you understand functionally the important difference here? And the penal legal liars, they teach that Jesus died the death that the sinner deserves, the eternal second death. And then they go make up all these tricks about how even though he died the eternal death in which there was no resurrection, he rose, you know, 72 hours later or less. And it's very tricky how how they get there. It's just not true. And they say, well, because he emotionally thought he was going to. Just think that through. We have somebody on death row in any state in America and they go into the gas chamber or me, the death chamber where they're going to have an, uh, the, the IV needle uh, death infusion and they believe they're going to die, but the, um, they actually have an anesthesiologist in there that just put him to sleep for 12 hours and wake him up 12 hours later. Would you say, yep, that's it. He thought he was going to die, so he paid the death penalty. You wouldn't say that's the death penalty if he just got put to sleep and woken up. And that's basically what the people say. Uh, Well, he thought he was going to die, so it really counts. No. He destroyed the cause of death, and that's why he rose again, because the reason that people die of sin, he purged and eliminated and and destroyed at the cross. That's what Scripture teaches. The wicked in the end die, overcome it. Go to to our website, Come and Reason, and type in second death and read the whole blog, and I give you all the evidence for that in the blog to show that. But there is one element that's true, and it's important. Graham Maxwell used to point out this truth of it, and that is, At the cross, Jesus took the sinner's place not only to purge and destroy death, but to demonstrate the Father's actions in the death of the wicked. And what did the Father do to Jesus at the cross? He let him go. He didn't use power to kill him. He didn't rain fire down from heaven. He didn't use power to execute him. He simply released Jesus to reap what Jesus chose And Jesus chose to destroy death and destroy the power of Satan and to restore the principles and and the law of love into the humanity that he bore in our behalf. He chose that path. And he said himself, no one can take my life. I will lay it down and I will take it up again. And God removed himself from that equation and left Jesus free to reap what Jesus chose in his person. And the wicked in the end, what does God do to them in the end? He sets them free to reap what they chose in their person. And they chose eternal separation from the source of life, and thus they die in the end because their condition is consumed by sin, where Christ's condition was the destruction of the sin element and the restoration of the law of love in his humanity. It says, in the book Seventh-day Adventists Believe, copyright 1988, the English term atonement implies reconciliation between two estranged parties. Both, uh, And the question then is, are both parties estranged? Share your thoughts on this. This is a classic um, penal legal misunderstanding of reconciliation. It, it, and, and so it really depends. It's, it's very subtle, so you have to think through carefully. It is true that in any relationship... If the relationship becomes fractured for any reason and they're no longer united, that estrangement exists between the two parties. Both parties are now estranged from the other because that relationship has been fractured. So when Adam sinned and separated himself from God, he is no longer in unity with God. And that simultaneous means God doesn't have a unified, holy relationship with Adam at this time. So there is estrangement. Both experience estrangement. That's a fact. However, that then gets, in the penal legal side of things, they introduce a falsehood that in order to be reconciled, since both are experiencing the experience of being estranged from the other, that both then need have to have something done to them for reconciliation to happen. That's not true. You have to define in the, in the case What is the cause of the estrangement? Is there something wrong with God that needs fixing? No. Is there something wrong with God's law that needs fixing? No. When Adam sinned, did Adam and Eve get changed? There's something wrong with them that need to be restored back into oneness with God. Yes. So the entire reconciliation process and Scripture always speaks of humankind being reconciled to God. And Scripture never speaks of God being reconciled to man. While they're estranged from each other, it's totally because humankind are out of harmony with God and the whole plan of salvation is restore us back. So that's what reconciliation in this sense means. Why do you think the Old Testament is not more clear about the Godhead being three persons since uh, the, this understanding is so crucial to our salvation? And you could say, why was the Old Testament not more clear about Satan being a, a fallen angel? You will find Satan referenced very, very few times in the Old Testament as well and the, and the demonic forces. Uh, this is part of the mindset of the people back back then and what God was dealing with. Uh, their capacity for understanding truth? Why do you think he had to step way down into this very primitive childlike rules that he gave them and give them all the symbolism uh, that was not necessary for for Enoch to have, as Enoch did not have to have an entire sanctuary service with priests and and, uh, seven annual feasts each year and all these things? Why did he do all this? Because they were primitive childlike in their thinking coming out of slave mentality their minds have been corrupted by pagan traditions and pagan belief systems all around them and god had to meet them where they were in order to lead them where he wanted to be and this and the progression of unfolding truth is not because god is slow in keeping his promises or deficient in his capacity for revealing truth, it is because human minds are slow in appreciating, assimilating, and advancing the truth. And that's why it takes so so long. It says, when you talk about anger, how to hold our anger toward our own family members and speak more kindly, I think you might want to... Make a track about this. I see many people uh, who yeah, go to go to our search engine. Type in anger. I've written several blogs about anger and how to handle anger. And so those those I think you might find those very helpful. In Genesis four, God tells Cain that sin is crouching at his door, but he must rule over it. Was Jesus' life, death, and resurrection necessary for us to overcome sin? If so, then why did he expect those in the Old Testament to overcome sin? So, so th- there's no disconnect here. This this is a this. Uh, Cain, Enoch, uh, any person at any time after Adam's fall is only saved by the achievements of Jesus Christ. And Enoch had to apply the same benefits of Jesus that you and I have to apply that we talked about in class today. There's no difference. The Holy Spirit had to bring into Enoch's life the same new desires, new motives. Well, how could he do it if Jesus hadn't come yet? And that's where we get stuck in our very human linear think God is an infinite being who is the creator of all reality. He not only creates physical matter, he not only creates energy, and is the source of energy, he creates time. He built time. He lives outside of time. He is not constrained in time like we are in time. We live from one moment to another, but with God, the past Present and future are alike outspread before him. Now, for those who live in time, if you think that we live in time and we live in a linear existence, moving from past uh, through the present into the future, that's how we live. For those of us who live in time, We require in our existence the realities that restore us to oneness with God. Christ had to come, become a real human being, be tempted like us in every way, overcome using his human abilities, restore righteousness into the species human. If Christ never came at anywhere in time and achieved these things, no human could be saved. But once Christ came and achieved it, and he went back to heaven our God who lives outside of time can take the victory of Christ and apply it anywhere in time because God operates in all points in time. And so those people in the past were receiving salvation through Christ. And this is what the Bible teaches, that it was Jesus was the rock who led Israel uh, through the, who, who watered Israel in the desert and so forth. So that's how I understand that. Thank you all for the questions and see you all next week.